Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So, dress listeners, welcome to our Fashion History Now mini-sode, where we keep you up to date on the latest and greatest in the field of fashion studies. Cass, what do we have this week? Well, I wanted to share with you an article or video that my cousin Miranda actually sent to us and uh, recently, and I don't know, it might be actually a year or two old, but it was still very fascinating. Um, it's a very short video. We'll put a link to you, but it's called The Man Who Protects the World's Rarest Colors. Ah. And it was an article by Jessica Griggs on liveplayeat.com. And so there is a man by the name of Narayan, um, or Narayan, I apologize if I get it wrong, Kandikar, and he is the head of the Forbes Pigment Collection at Harvard University. So this is a really, really cool collection. There's over 2,500 pigments, and pigments are basically, they're a small particle of colored material. It can be taken from any number of sources, and then it's mixed with a binding medium like urine. <laughs> You got to do what you got to (laughs) do. Um, it gives paint its colors. So there's so many, it's kind of like an apothecary of colors. There's all these different jars and different sizes and, and from different periods of history with all these beautiful colors. But I have to say that the most fascinating part of this collection is what these actual mediums, these pigments are, where they come from. Mm. So for instance, you can get, um, we've all heard of cochineal possibly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have not, but that is an actual, a, a beetle. Mm-hmm. So like hundreds of thousands of beetles were crushed to get this beautiful, deep kind of red pinkish color. Mm-hmm. And that would produce this like astoundingly small amount of color. And I think it's even only the female beetles too. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like this, and that's <laughs> it. So it was this luxury, like it was one of the prime exports that came from um, the Spanish colonies in Mexico, for instance, um, beginning in the 16th century. It was like a high luxury item. Also, like purple comes from mollusks. They used to get the uh-huh. purple, um, like by squeezing it out of a mollusk. Just saying, this is a lot of work. But then there's also the dried urine of a cow. <laughs> Um, things like a chunk of lead that's soaked in vinegar. This is what he talks about in the video. And even April, Egyptian mummies. What? Mummies have a color? (laughs) Resin was applied to the outside of bandages, and they have that in this collection. And then he says that one of the most rare colors they have is this entire ball of Indian yellow, which is, like I just said, dried urine of cows who were fed only mango leaves. (laughs) This is very specific. It's very specific. It's very cool. This is uh, related specifically to painting. Of course, there's a lot of, like I said, a lot of those little insects were used to dye fabric as well. But Kanikar is actually a conservation scientist and he consults on dating paintings and he conserves and restores them as well. So just a really, really cool little video that I wanted to share with you and I hope you check it out. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to check it out. Speaking of textiles, Cass, have you heard about deserto? And by that, I don't mean dessert. I have not. 
Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about one of the coolest things that I've seen in textile science developments recently. And Deserto is a project from Adrian Lopez Velarde and Marte Cazares. And they're based in Mexico. You can head over to their website. It's deserto.com.mx. And basically, as of about a year ago, it officially launched in summer 2019. They have created vegan leather from Nopal or cactus, which is amazing, right? We talk about sustainability a lot, and I love this business model so much. They have a whole cactus farm um, located in Mexico, and they get a new harvest every six to eight months, which requires no additional irrigation at all. They're not using up water. And I just want to quote this little passage from their website really quickly about what goes into like processing the cactus. They say, quote, after cutting the mature leaves, we dry them in the sun for three days until achieving the exact humidity levels we seek. So there's no oven or additional energy used like gas in this drying process. Then we process organic raw material to make it part of our patented formula, which allows us to make the cactus vegan leather, which we call deserto. And please note that our ranch is fully organic. There are no herbicides or pesticides used. All the remaining cactus material not used in our process is exported and or sold nationally within the food industry. So you can imagine how organic and safe our material is. And and look at this. This is exactly what we need right now, right? Yes, absolutely. Non-synthetic leather. Yeah, and, and also just like the, these brilliant minds figuring out the science of how to use exactly what we already have without creating any more stress on the planet. And the company already has multiple organic certifications. And you can even reach out and contact them. They can customize color. They can customize the texture. And they can also customize the thickness um, for whatever product that you need, whether it be clothing or handbags or shoes or whatever. So cactus leather... Yay. I kind of want to interview these guys and and see what they're up to. Maybe we'll do that on a future fashion history now. Yes, please. That would be so fascinating. Like what inspired them to do that and how? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure they're not going to give away any proprietary secrets per se, but, um, you know, I'm sure there are some basic things that they could probably enlighten us all about. I never cease to be amazed by all of the incredible work that people are doing around the world. And it usually is a lot of these like small businesses or farmers or um, scientists, you know, all these people who are just trying to make the world that they live in a better place. And I love that it is affecting the fashion industry directly. So yeah. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Absolutely. So I'm going back in history for my next little tidbit because when I am bored, trust listeners. And <laughs> because you have so much spare time on your hands while getting your PhD. Okay, so maybe when I need a distraction from my PhD, <laughs> I browse old fashion magazines and I, this was actually, a, um, I discovered this um, column probably a couple years ago, but I was only recently reminded of it. It's um, a beauty advice column from Harper's Bazaar that ran from 1870 to 1874 called For the Ugly Girls. Mm-hmm. I know about this. You <laughs> want to know why I know about this? Not necessarily from the column per se, but we actually have a 
book, which is a beauty manual in the collection at FIT, which is called The Ugly Girl Papers. Yep. It's a book. So, you know, we've talked about this on the show many, many times. Fashion magazines, as much as we love them, they're as controversial as they are celebrated. As with anything related to the fashion and beauty industries comes these idealized notions about the definition of what is beautiful. And obviously that changes over time. But it has, you know, it's really an age-old question that has, in my opinion, disproportionately haunted women. (laughs) because, you know, there are a ton of people out there who are largely men, but also women who have been willing to define that question for us. Um, Men's appearances have historically been kind of secondary to their wealth and their power, while the beauty of a woman is often seen as an extension or a symbol of her husband's success and wealth, but also her own morality and respectability. So, you know, to be beautiful is something to aspire to, and we still battle with those ideals to this very day. So it's perhaps not surprising that fashion magazines are the worst propagators of that beauty myth. No more evidence than this Harper's Bazaar column. And I just, um, I wanted to read you one of the articles. The very first article actually begins by defining the very genre to which the author's readers are presumed to subscribe. So how do I become pretty? And the author herself (laughs) (laughs) is presumably part of this so-called ugly girl society. So it's almost like a tongue-in-cheek self deprecating admission that ugliness is only the most temporary of states. Beauty is only the purview, natural beauty, I should say, is only the purview of a select few and everyone else should just aspire to it. So, And, and by that means, I'm, I'm guessing that means buy things. Actually, this is not really an ad for buying things. It's oh. kind of like a home, it's not, it's like a home remedies, maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. You're going to be, it's going to, it's going to, it's bizarre, guys. So okay. here we go. November 30th, 1872. This is all about unwanted facial hair. So, you know, I'm just going to go on record and say that I have I have facial hair and I have gone between waxing it um, and now I just kind of shave it. I have a little face shaver and I'm not ashamed mm-hmm. to say that I do. So yeah, there you go. I'm a naturally very hairy person. Like I have to get my eyebrows threaded and because it's so painful to do my mustache, I have to have that waxed. Yeah, and I used to wax it, but I use retinol, so I can't. So I oh, right, it. because it's very sensitive right there. If you mm-hmm. guys have never – threading hurts more than waxing, so that's why I do with the waxing. But that area of your body, if you've never, like, had anything threaded or waxed there, you don't realize how sensitive mm-hmm. that little area right above your lip is. It's in, it's It hurts way more than getting anything else threaded or waxed, just saying. Yeah. So, you know, this is not a new problem. Women have been struggling this for many years, although this author has some opinions about why. So here we go. (laughs) A constant subscriber wishes to know what will completely remove superfluous hair, adding that she is annoyed with such growth of it on her face that she is the remark of her friends. These unfortunate cases are the result of morbid constitution, freaks of nature which are to be combated as one would eradicate leprosy or scrofula. <laughs> what is scrofula? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think I want to know either. So apparently this extreme growth of hair where it should not be comes from gross living or in young persons is inherited from those whose blood was made of too rich materials. 
So living for two or three generations on overlarded meats, plenty of nice pastries, salt meats, ham, fish with good old pickles from brine, in short, what would be called high living among middle class people is pretty sure to leave its reminders on lip and brow. <laughs> what? So what they're saying is that your ham sandwich, if you had a side of pickles with it, your generations of eating that. Your family. And your ancestors. And then it goes on. This is a really long article. I'm not going to read it all. But sometimes the typhoid fever steps in and arrests the generation by a painful and searching process, which burns out, as it were, the vile particles. So, you know, she Mm. talks about how your skin peels off if you have typhoid fever and that will get rid of your hair. And then you have a face pink as a child's. So... She goes on to give advice about how to remove hair. She talks about how the Romans used tweezers and how, you know, a lot of times this just the hair gets broken off and that you really need to pull it out at the root. So she suggests basically this like waxing technique, but she suggests bathing in a hot solution of chloride of lime twice. What? As strong as that used for bleaching cotton. So you're supposed to get into a bath of basically like sulfur and lime, and then that's going to like help soften the hair, and then you wax it? Is that the theory? And and you're supposed to be putting this on your face. Yes, exactly. So I don't know. There's some sort of paste that gets put on, and then that'll get removed as well. So I don't know. My point is that this is interesting. <laughs> Beauty remedies of days of yore. Yeah. I mean, if you guys want more of these, there's plenty of more where they come from. It's really, really interesting. She also um, suggests, you know, soaking in a sulfur bath, um, among many, many things about how to, you know, no longer be part of the ugly girl society. It's bookended by an article about Mark Twain's marriage and then why cold milk for infants is good. So... This is pre-fashion magazine, Harper's Bazaar. It's still very much like a society. Ladies um, magazine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, see, now I'm going to have to, when we get back IRL into the office, I'm going to have to pull that particular manual down and see if I can find some more gems, perhaps, that we can discuss that are in the book proper. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a whole episode in itself, just beauty (laughs) beauty advice from the past. Yeah, well, um, I have really been wanting to do an episode on this for a very long time, and I haven't asked yet, but I would love to get the amazing, incredible Eileen Ribeiro to come on the show and maybe discuss her book, Facing Beauty. So um, I'm actually going to work on that right after we get done recording this. Yes, let's just put that in the universe. Put it into the universe. Um, Okay, so the last thing that I want to talk about today is probably one of the best fashion history things I've seen in years, and I'm 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 underscoring this. Ooh. Okay, get excited, and especially for any of you who are professors who teach fashion history or perhaps costume design, you are going to be super duper into this. Apparently, last week or maybe even the week before, uh, Christian Dior, the archivist uploaded on their YouTube channel a documentary from 1949, which is called The World of Monsieur Dior in His Own Words. And it's in 
incredible. It is from 1949. It's about 15 minutes long. And basically, it is this documentary of Dior making his one of his 1949 collections. Like, Ooh. we see... Uh, the Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson, walking into the couture house. We get to see his home, his personal home in the Ile de France. We get to meet his dogs. We see Dior sketching. We see all of the toiles being cut and made within the studio. Wow. It also talks about how for this single collection, he was creating 170 different looks for this one collection. And it has all all this other fascinating information that there were 15 workshops in the House of Dior at that time, including employing 700 seamstresses at this time. And you have to remember, this is only two years in from the launch of the new look. This is only two years in from him opening the house, period. So that is like meteoric expansion and success that Dior experience. Um, we get to see Mr. Bricard, who at lunch may or may not be wearing a diamond brooch in the middle of her forehead at work. <laughs> Just saying. And some of the dresses from this particular collection are some of Dior's most famous designs. So the entire thing kind of like culminates in the actual footage from the actual showing of the collection. Um to fashion editors and buyers, and then also some just kind of like general kind of like runway walks from the models. And one of the dresses that we get to see in action on the model at this time is the Junon dress, which is, of course, one of his most famous designs. It's this incredibly elaborate beaded situation, strapless dress with layers of tulle and and chiffon that are all hand beaded and all these layers like a flower. We've actually, I'm pretty, we have posted images of the Junon dress on our um, Instagram before and we perhaps will do that again. But I have to say, seriously, best primary source fashion history that I've seen in a really long time. So you can just go over to Christian Dior's YouTube channel, and it's it's the, probably the first thing that's going to come up because it was very recent, and it's just called The World of Monsieur Dior in His Own Words. Check it out. Wonderful. And of course, he's written a fabulous autobiography as well. And I think it's Dior in My Own Words, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's been renamed a couple times, but I think it might be called Dior by Dior. I think. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And then in French, it's called Je suis couturier, if you want to read it in French in the original version. I think it came out in 1951 originally and then was republished in English in 1953. So, yeah. All right, April. Well, I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners, that I think uh, hopefully we've given you some fun things to see, to watch, to do, to read. And we hope you will join us on Tuesday for our full length episode. Bye-bye. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.